Hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're broadcasting here on The Big Talker, 106.7 FM, broadcasting out of Wilmington, North Carolina, and on Saga 960 AM out of the Peel region, Ontario, Canada. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, broadcasting again from the old continent in the home studio here in Vienna, Austria. It's been a while since... uh, I've been broadcasting from these shores, but it is an honor to do so, and I'm doing it with my co-host, uh, who's uh, up there in Toronto, Ontario, across the ocean, across the vast space of oceans. David, sir, how goes it? Well, it's going well. It's going well. Um, the province is starting to slowly reopen, so um, we're not going to have anything like uh, the summer that's being experienced in the U.S. Um, COVID is certainly not over here. Um, but it is nice to see the needle move in the right direction in terms of uh, getting rid of some of these restrictions, so life is good, and we have a great guest for this week's show. Um, If you are a Making a Murderer fan, um, the very popular Netflix documentary, uh, we will have Jerry Buting on the show, who was Stephen Avery's uh, defense attorney in his trial in the murder of Teresa Halbeck. And so um, just an in, just a, a incredibly intelligent um, mind when it comes to legal reform and the issues in the criminal justice system beyond what we usually talk about. Um, and so, yeah, a great interview. Stay tuned for that in the latter half of the show. Um, just a just an all around great guy, and it's going to be a uh, it's going to be a program. long interview, David. So I, I do hope that uh, yes. people tune in not just for uh, the rest of the radio hour, uh, but if you want to hear the entire interview, you can go to our YouTube page or to our website, consumerchoiceradio.com. We put the full version over there on our podcast, uh, so you are able to catch on that consumerchoiceradio.com with all of our previous interviews and show notes. If we have any articles that we've been talking about. Uh, surely you've seen that. And speaking of articles, David, there's a couple things I wanted to get to here in the first segment. A uh, couple things that have been grinding your yes, gears. Yes, just a tad. Just a tad. One is this, uh, there's this huge report that came out from ProPublica, and this is a big North American thing. And the title of it, um, you know, I'll let you guess the contents, but the title is The Secret IRS Files, Trove of Never-Before-Seen Records, Reveal how the wealthiest avoid income tax. Now, this is from uh, ProPublica. Pro uh, this sort of a investigative journalism outlet, uh, fairly left-leaning. But in this, uh, apparently they have an IRS, I guess you'd call him whistleblower or leaker, uh, who is able to provide the IRS information for a couple of billionaires, including Bezos, Musk, Warren Buffett, and uh, they put together, you know, these charts and this information about their true tax rate. And uh, the entire idea is that these guys make billions of dollars, but yet there's only this percentage of all of their wealth that is taxed. Now, my initial reaction is, oh, no, uh, what, what, what could this be? Could they be hiding uh, billions of dollars in offshore accounts? That actually has nothing to do with it. It has to do with how we tax income generally in liberal democracies, meaning that we tax income, income when you receive it, not just your wealth based upon what you have. I mean, I know you've written about the wealth tax in Canada, David, uh, but that's where this measurement true tax rate comes up. 
And uh, for the various people, Warren Buffett, it's like 0.1%, Bezos, 0.9%, Michael Bloomberg, uh, our buddy, 1.3%, and Musk, 3.2%. And they, they've, in, they've invented this terrible idea of what a true tax rate is, really, I think, being fairly ignorant about how taxes work anyway. Oh, yeah. So I, I did some digging into this. So first off, if you hold company stock and that stock goes through the roof you'll see the headlines and it'll say elon musk is the richest person in the world because they estimate how much in air quotes money he has because he owns tesla stock the problem is is that it's not income until you actually realize that gain you have to sell it in order to get the money um, and so the proposal here from some folks is just insane because it would be it's essentially pr proposing to tax your unrealized gains, which means they're taxing money, taxing you based on money you've never received. And I actually did some digging into what the actual tax rates are on income. So once those stocks are sold, that would count as income. Um, the top 1% of tax filers in the U.S., they earn 21% of all of the income in the U.S. Now, some of our progressive friends may have an issue with that. Some of some people may say that's fine. I have no opinion. But that top 1% of income taxpayers actually pay 40% of all of the country's income taxes. So the idea that these guys are just skirting away tax-free doesn't hold up. The average income tax rate for those folks in the U.S. is about 25.4%. The average income tax rate for the average American is 13.3%. So the the reality just isn't there where they're skirting taxes. They're just not paying taxes on those gains yet because they haven't been realized. And so for, I mean, for ordinary people, I've written about this. Imagine you have a pension, you, you contribute into your 401k or into a, a pension plan, and the government wants to tax you on that money before you've ever received any of it. That's essentially what this report and, and folks are proposing, which is just insane. Yeah, and the, we know the, the news cycle of how this works. Essentially, there's supposed to be an uncovering of secret documents and uh, lead us to some conclusion that we need to vastly change how taxes are done so we could get more of that money. Uh, this is always brought up in the context of how to pay for a lot of government spending, which is not a conversation that is unique to basically any country now. This is essentially a big conversation for most countries, figuring out where they can get that extra money. Uh, but as you mentioned, David, it's just a, not a good understanding of how stuff is taxed in the first place. I mean, I thought we dealt with this during the time of Mitt Romney, when he was the uh, Republican uh, candidate there for uh, President of the United States, he's a guy who, oh, he only paid 15%. Well, that's because he didn't have an income, as it were. Correct. All of his money that he got or he was able to get, he received through capital gains, through stocks, or, or some some kind of percentages in the market, and then you pay taxes on that, and that's fairly legal. It's what a lot of people do. It's what a lot of business people do. It's what you do if you're an entrepreneur on your own. So this kind of stuff is... Again, it, it just relies on people's ignorance, and that's what I don't like about a lot of journalism is that we're not supposed to be, if you're a journalist, you're not supposed to be, you know, really adding to the, I would say, the misinformation or even disinformation about how 
things work in our societies, specifically when it comes to taxation, because all this is going to do is raise the pitchforks when realistically, if you want to change that, you got to tinker with the system. And there's a lot of different things you could do. But again, that's just looking at how you how you get money in the door. But as you mentioned, most of the money that's coming in the door uh, to to fund the federal governments, I mean, both in the Canada and the U.S., come from the top income earners. And everyone conflates the idea of paying taxes to municipalities or state or provincial governments. But look, I mean, your envy uh, cannot be, you know, the reason to pass laws. That's a really bad way to craft legislation because, believe me, there's plenty of people who have envy. Uh, there are plenty of people who would be envious of what you have, where you are, dear listener. <laughs> if you got a house, you got a boat, you got a car— uh, there are people who also want to tax you based on the value of that, which I know you've written on, David. Yeah. Thankfully, wealth tax is nothing, at least that I've seen in the U.S., that is being considered. Uh, that was shot down a, a while ago in the Democratic primaries. But, yeah, it rears its ugly head again. Yeah, good good guy Joe came back. Yeah, good good guy Joe Biden came back, and he, he did not want to go down that route, which is uh, which is a positive. But, yeah, I mean, just a mess. Just a mess. Like, imagine... Okay, so... If you're a pro, you own a house. Any listener who owns a house, you pay a property tax locally for that. But then imagine also paying tax on the value of your car. So you bought a new car for thirty thousand dollars. The next year, it's worth twenty-five, and you have to take out uh, whatever. Let's say a five percent tax rate. You got to take out five percent of the value of that car and fork it over to the government because that car is worth twenty-five grand. And then multiply that by anything you could own. Most people listening to that would go, oh, like, that sounds awful. Why, like, th- that that doesn't sound feasible or reasonable at all. But that's essentially what these taxes are. It's just fashionable because a lot of the people who propose them are pointing the finger at people who aren't us. But it, but if we actually were to apply, um, apply that, uh that that tax policy to ordinary people, people would be outraged. Exactly. Yeah, and it, it all has to do with that. It's always about getting a bigger piece of the pie, not figuring out how we can grow the pie for everyone else. And uh, that's just the normal uh, central mentality of a lot of the, this tax stuff. And uh, I would say, you know, envious, uh, particularly journalism or researchers, uh, and I have seen a lot of takedowns of this, so very happy to see that. Um, but speaking of envy, David, I got a nice little rant for you here in uh, in our first segment here before we go to Jerry Buting. Have you uh, been able to rent a car recently? Actually, no, I haven't. Um, I haven't been able to rent a car, mostly because I haven't needed to go anywhere. But when we were traveling quite a bit, I mean, you and I were all over the world for a span of two years, it felt like. Um, we did certainly rent cars. Um, it wasn't the most enjoyable experience, I can tell you that. And, uh, David, the things have not changed. So I recently made my way back to the European continent and uh, had to go through the rigmarole of the rental car industry. Did you know, David, that there's a nationwide shortage of rental cars? That's what these guys are telling me in the uh, the customer service. I did hear about that. The idea was that during the early early part of the pandemic, they sold off a lot of their fleets. Um, Like there was a used car bonanza. Um, because they were selling selling these cars that obviously weren't going to get rented because people weren't traveling. I haven't looked into that to see if it's true or not. 
Well, it is definitely true that uh, there, you know there were not as many used cars on the markets, and they were being slurped up uh, by the second. But what a lot of these rental companies did is they sold off all their fleets, not just you know for the prices, but also because they didn't have customers and they needed to make their bottom line. So without customers, you know, throughout the course of the pandemic, they needed money now and they needed to avoid bankruptcy. And, you know, a company like Hertz was really close to bankruptcy. I think Enterprise, much the same. And realistically, you know, it's normal. That's what you do in economics is what you do in business, uh, you know, whenever times are tough. Uh, But these companies have never been too good at customer service. And it's gotten even worse now. And the example that I bring up is I try to rent a car myself, had a reservation, did it all, did all the research, figured out the dates, figured out the location. I got a call two hours before the reservation saying, hey, we ain't got no cars. None. Okay. So then uh, I asked if, you know, they could just find me another car, and they said, not possible. And uh, basically forced me to do my own research to book another service. I looked at other competing services of the company that I had. I had Avis. And uh, apparently they only have cars available for one-way rentals, meaning you pick it up in one place and drop it off somewhere else. At airports, and airports have a litany of taxes and fees that are applied. And essentially I had to pay about $150 more than my previous rental, and I had to drive about an hour. So that's how ridiculous all this is. Brutal. And what I think is the most atrocious about this is I don't cry, I don't shed a tear because these companies have been working for years to keep out innovative competitors, companies like Turo and Get Around that have peer-to-peer car sharing models. That's what they've been doing. You reap what you sow. Uh, a little bit of a rant here, <laughs> first part. Uh, we're hoping to do a little bit more on this because, I, yeah, it upsets a lot of people. No, you're totally right. I love it. It's it's like they spent, they've spent decades or not de- a decade, rigging the market against these new innovative Uber-style competitors that basically Uberize rental uh, cars, and now they're feeling the pain. So, um, yeah, I mean, we're going to go to break here, and uh, after the break, we're going to return with Jerry Buting, so stay tuned for that. And we're back on Consumer Choice Radio. I'm very pleased to reintroduce our next guest, who is a Wisconsin-based, now internationally known criminal defense lawyer. He was Stephen Avery's lawyer, uh, whose case was featured in the acclaimed Netflix documentary, Making a Murderer. Uh, And he also happens uh, to be the co-founder, or one of the co-founders, for the Center for Integrity in Forensics Sciences. Uh, thank you very much, Jerry Buting, for joining us on Consumer Choice Radio. My pleasure. Awesome, awesome. So, I mean, thank you again uh, for, for joining us. Uh, you're, you're now a friend of the show, as we like to say, for all of our repeat guests. Um, we couldn't have you on and, and not first chat about um, if there have been any progressions in uh, the case uh, for Stephen Avery and Brennan Dassey, although they're two very separate cases, obviously they get discussed um, very much in that same conversation. Um, is there anything our listeners should know in terms of where those cases are going? 
well, I don't know how up to date people are on, on the, the developments in Stephen's case, but it's it's pending now in the Court of Appeals. Um, the briefing is all done. The they're waiting on a decision from the Court of Appeals. Um, it, the decision could be a number of different things. They could send it back to the trial court for an evidentiary hearing where witnesses can be presented. Uh, the state can cross-examine them, and ultimately the trial judge decides if there's enough to grant a new trial or some other um, additional remedies, perhaps. Um, since the case was fully briefed, uh, which was really back in January, I think, there's been some new developments and that another witness has come forward and uh, said that he was a newspaper delivery person and um, actually was there on the uh, at the Avery Salvage Yard on the morning of early morning hours of November 5th, which is later that morning, the day that the RAV4 was discovered, um, quote unquote, um, by these volunteers who were really, I think, working as agents for the for law enforcement. But at any rate, this witness says that he saw Bobby Dassey and another individual actually pushing the RAV4 onto uh, down the lane that led directly to where it was later found. Um, and he says that he contacted the police after it became public that this vehicle was uh, discovered and he was basically blown off, said, yeah, yeah, fine, we, we know we got the right guy. And then um, didn't really uh, hear, hear back from them, assumed that maybe, you know, this had nothing directly to do with Stephen Avery's guilt, and so didn't say anything else uh, until years later when he watches Making a Murder and then comes out, um, says that he tried to contact um, a, uh, attorneys, not us, but prior attorneys, other attorneys on the case, and um, didn't hear back from them and ultimately made contact with Kathleen Zellner, who now has filed an affidavit with the Court of Appeals asking that the case be set back for that reason. Um, that there be a hearing with that witness. Uh, again, you know, at an evidentiary hearing, the state has the opportunity to cross-examine, uh, to challenge a defense witness, whether it's an expert or a lay witness, fact witness like this person. And, and so we're waiting to see if at that point the state's opposing it. Um, they're saying that this should not be raised now. The case had other issues had already been briefed. But uh, we have not heard back from the Court of Appeals since Kathleen Zellner filed that additional motion. Brendan's case, by the way, though, is, is sort of dormant, but not, uh, it's not like nobody's doing anything on it. The, the last actual substantive thing that happened was when they applied for clemency from Governor Evers, Wisconsin's governor, and he denied the petition, uh, his, his uh, commission denied the petition very, very sort of cursorily without any real um, explanation other than that the way the guidelines for or the requirements for a clemency petition exist right now, you have to be out of prison and off supervision for five years before you can apply for a pardon or clemency petition, which of course does nothing for people who are sitting in prison wrongly convicted or with excessive sentences that really should be out. And, um, but there was sort of a, an escape clause in that, that, that if the governor chooses, they could in, in certain cases uh, depart from those qualifications. And it didn't happen here. There are still people pushing for that. 
And I'm sure that the lawyers behind the scenes are also still working on legal grounds that he might have to, to raise to try and get his case back in court. I mean, two, two very important updates. I know I was, it was tough to see. I, this was back a while ago when the Supreme Court, I think, um, did not choose to, to rule or to adjudic adjudicate the Dassey case. But it, it does bring up another important question which I'd love to hear your insights on is why people, the various reasons why people plead guilty to crimes that they did not do. Um, obviously, I, I mean, uh, in my opinion, the, the Brennan Dassey case is, is, is a good example of that, but we've also seen very high profile uh, cases like the Exonerated Five um, in terms of mm -hmm. confessions uh, to crimes that they did not commit. And so I'm just wondering if you could educate our listeners as to what the background is on why that happens so frequently. Sure. Well, there's really two different kinds of things going on. The Dassey case is an example of why people falsely confess to things that they didn't do. Um, and, you know, that's that's one problem that we have. And part of that is because of the techniques that are used, the, the read technique and some of these um, particularly confrontational interrogation techniques that are still in large practice all over America um, that uh, combined with uh, a vulnerable person that is somebody who's, who's very young or su suggestive um, or vulnerable adults can easily be manipulated into saying things that aren't true. And we know that because DNA exonerations, you mentioned the, 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 uh, Central Park Five, I think, um, but in other cases of exoneration where there's actually DNA evidence that proves that the, the person who was convicted was innocent, when it's juveniles that were involved, about 43% of the time they falsely confessed. And so why? And, and you know, we know this happens because of now, study after study has shown that certain techniques are more likely to produce false confessions than others. But then there's the other question, which is not just why people falsely confess, but why do innocent people plead guilty? And that's a, that's a, a problem, not just in America, it's a problem all over the world. Um, the UK is dealing with that issue right now, um, where they've seen a, a real increase because by statute, they're allowed to get a uh, basically a one-third reduction of their sentence if they plead guilty early. And so people are, some people are jumping at that even when they're innocent rather than risk going to trial. Um, and so we have in America something called a trial penalty. Um, it, it can be applicable in a number of ways. Um, it can be simply because judges um, punish people more severely if they go to trial rather than plead guilty. Um, no judge will admit that they do that, but in practice, lawyers see it all the time. Um, and uh, you, know, you, you should not be penalized for exercising your constitutional right to a trial, your constitutional right to make the state prove you guilty beyond reasonable doubt, but it happens and we know what happens. Um, it also happens because people plead guilty since they, because they're in custody on bail. This is particularly a pernicious problem when it comes to lower level offenses, misdemeanors or lower level felonies where people are in, uh, poor people are in, are in jail before trial while they're supposedly presumed innocent. They have cash bail on them that is beyond their means and they simply cannot get out. And they sit for months. And now it's even worse with the COVID crisis because 
the courts shut down and there are people with speedy trial demands that take precedence um, over people who have lesser offenses. And so uh, sometimes somebody will sit for, for, uh, in prison for six, eight, nine months waiting trial because they are demand, they're saying they're innocent. Uh, and the prosecutor comes to them with an offer, look, if you plead guilty, you'll get off with time served. Basically, you have the key to your, uh, your jail door. You can walk out today if you plead guilty. And so people do. And you know they, they oftentimes do get what they're, they're offered, which is to get out right away. But there's all of these uh, direct and collateral consequences that they face the, for the rest of their life, whether it's you know, just having a criminal conviction can, can have all kinds of consequences in closing doors. And so that's one thing. The last thing I would say about that real quick is that mandatory minimum sentences that legislatures have passed and put in the hands of prosecutors um, is another driving factor. So people who, um, uh, I've got a case right now, a guy who's never been convicted, charged with anything before in his life. He is accused of a one-time incident that is highly unlikely to have occurred. Um, a sexual assault of anybody under the age of 12. In Wisconsin, the prosecutor has a, a choice. They can either charge as a normal sexual assault would be in which for which there's no mandatory minimum, you could get probation in theory, or they can charge mandatory minimum 25 years in prison without parole. And uh, increasingly, prosecutors are using that as a leverage to get people to plead guilty to something less. Um, if you wanna to go to trial, fine, but the ante is up. You're going to prison for 25 years, never getting out that entire time. Or you can take this deal right now, we'll, we'll give you, you know, a couple years or three, four years or whatever. And so people who are innocent sometimes are facing these difficult decisions where the risk of losing a trial is too great and therefore they take a guilty plea. You're listening to Consumer Choice Radio. We're speaking with criminal defense attorney Jerry Buting. He's also the author of the book Illusion of Justice, which we'll link to. Uh, Jerry, the last time we spoke, it was April uh, 2020. Uh, we were in the midst of the pandemic, the very beginning, and uh, basically a month later, uh, all of the eyes of the nation were on our police, on our court systems, and we've had since that time various reforms proposed, everything from bail reform, like you just discussed, uh, qualified immunity. What is your reaction to this sort of new movement uh, for some kind of reforms, whether it be in the criminal justice system or police uh, that came in the wake of uh, the George Floyd incident and killing? Well, you know, it takes a tragedy like that to really wake people up. But I was very encouraged at the initial out, outpouring of um, uh, demands for police reform because there, as I talk about in my book, you know, police reform is only one aspect of our criminal justice system that is in dire need of reform. But it's a big one. It's where people interface with the community. Uh, the community interfaces with criminal justice more directly than anywhere else. Um, the I. I, I I tell you, I never expected in my life to see people walking down the streets with signs saying abolish qualified immunity. Um, it is a serious thing that needs to be abolished, but only lawyers have known this, you know, people in the know. I, I, it's amazing that this enough people now understand what it is and how um, damaging it is uh, to fairness in our justice system. Qualified immunity has to go. And what people don't realize about qualified immunity what qualified immunity is basically is that if it makes it very difficult for any plaintiff, 
not just uh, victims of police abuse, but any person suing the government, any government um, individual. Um, it, it, they, that individual is given a immunity, qualified they say, but as a practical matter, it's become absolute because the courts have interpreted it in a way that unless there is a clearly established prior case that says what the government person did, police or otherwise, was wrong and um, improper, then they're immune. And uh, it's, a, it's a doctrine, it was never passed as a statute anywhere in America, not by Congress, not by any states. It was imposed by the United States Supreme Court um, in the 1960s. And um, it, it later was morphed into such um, a ridiculous uh, format that it basically, like I said, it does almost give police or anybody else absolute immunity from lawsuits. Give you, here's one example. Um, some of the plaintiffs who, some of the people who, when um, uh, President Trump and Attorney General Barr uh, ordered the, um, the, the area right outside the White House to be cleared of demonstrators and fired tear gas and other things, um, some of them sued as a violation of their constitutional rights. And the defendants are saying, unless you can show us a case in which a president was involved directly in clearing an area of protesters and you know tear gas and, and on and on and on. The, the specificity of facts is ludicrous. You would never find an exact situation like that. Now, one thing that's, that's been uh, encouraging is the United States Supreme Court has in the last year started to put a couple of limits on this. Um, they have said that there was a case, terrible case in Texas where a guy was put in a jail cell for like six days or something. His first jail cell was covered in human feces, practically floor to ceiling. And then he, they move him to another one in which he basically has to sleep in sewage in a cold cell. He sues. And the lower courts say, well, there's no, there's no case where it's clearly established that we can't put people in, make them sleep in sewage. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court reversed and sent it back and said, look, that's obvious. You know, no person, no uh, correctional person could think that that was constitutionally acceptable, um, even though there wasn't a clearly established case where that had been said. So there's some cracks coming from the Supreme Court uh, from the most conservative areas of it. Uh, Clarence Thomas is one of them. Uh, but really, it needs to be, the people need to take it back. Um, it needs to be abolished by Congress and state legislatures. Uh, Colorado, I think, has already abolished it for state um, lawsuits. But uh, when you sue the government, you know, particularly if you're suing the federal government, they can always remove it into federal court where your local state statutes don't matter. Yeah, I mean, that's one where um, for those who, who are familiar with the outlet Reason, They've done some particularly good coverage of the most egregious yeah. examples of where police enter the wrong house on a no-knock raid and, mur and murder someone and their family is not allowed to, um, to sue because of qualified immunity and all sorts of other repercussions or, or all sorts of other really kind of horrific uh, examples um, without repercussion. Um, beyond that, another 
important topic, which as a Canadian is kind of foreign to me, but I know it's quite important um, and quite relevant in the United States, is the ongoing push to peel back the death penalty. Um, and so I'm just curious as to what your thoughts are on the death penalty, if you have any insight as to the amount of people whom are wrongly convicted who actually um, receive the death penalty um, and things like that. And, and if you have any positive or maybe negative thoughts on on how that fight to abolish the death penalty is going. Well, yeah, you know, there was actually a very a recent study a couple of months ago that looked at um, all of the executions and then looked at and compared that to the number of people who have been exonerated who, who were on death row. And it's astonishing, approximately, you know, for every eight people who were executed, one of them was exonerated, you know, I mean, it, it's, um, it's astonishing. And, you know, those eight, uh, one out of eight are, uh, you know, just the tip of the iceberg, I'm sure. We know, even though states have resisted it over and over, um, we know that there have been innocent people who have been executed. Um, the state does not want people to know that because it will, they, they fear it will completely undermine the death penalty for almost everybody. Um, and, you know, uh, there's an example, uh, I believe it's in Tennessee, that a, uh, a gentleman's uh, daughter, uh, a guy who was executed maybe 10 years ago, uh, there's now DNA that could prove or disprove his, uh, his guilt. And she believes it will show that he's innocent. And she has filed to try and get a test to prove that. And the state has fought it all the way up to Tennessee Supreme Court. And they ultimately said, nope, you don't, you're not allowed to do that. Um, you know, what it is, that we know what it is they're really afraid of. They're afraid that there will be conclusive proof that an innocent person has been executed. Um, even without that, though, uh, I think states are finding um, more and more <clears throat> that juries are, are not imposing the, the death penalty. They're not convicting <clears throat> on the death penalty there, when there are other options. And so some of the prosecutors are charging them less and less. Um, and it's really, I think, in large part because people have understood from the DNA exonerations that Innocent people can be convicted under the death penalty and executed under the death penalty. And it is irrevocable, you know, unlike all other penalties, you could give them life without parole, for instance. And if um, later there's proof of innocence, you know, you could save them. But if you execute them, you can't. And so there has been a very big trend. Um, I think now since the death penalty was reinstated in 1976, in America, I think there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 23 or 24 states that have abolished it now. And just in the last 10 years, maybe seven or eight, including uh, a couple of months ago, Virginia, which is the first Southern state to abolish the death penalty. Um, uh, people, have, it's not just the, the unfairness of executing an innocent person, but also uh, study after study has shown that it is just disproportionately applied to people of color, uh, poor people, um, you know, that's always been the case, but it, it's becoming more problematic for uh, the citizens now and uh, the, the voters and the support for the death penalty has gone down and down and down. It's also extremely expensive because it is irrevocable. We have all of these appeal rights that, that 
somebody who's convicted convicted of a death penalty has that maybe the ordinary person doesn't have. And so there's appeal after appeal after appeal, and there's all of these pretrial measures that need to be applied. Um, it costs millions of dollars for each death penalty prosecution in this country. And some people are thinking it's just not worth it. Um, you know, you, you, there are other alternatives that can still protect the community without taking that fundamental um, uh, ultimate decision that the government really should not be doing in the first place. Yeah, and if we even look at uh, South Carolina, uh, if we're going to go ahead and ring on the South, uh, we also saw that they, because of the, the price of the drugs that they use for the lethal injections have gotten so high, or there's not enough supply, uh, they're, they've put, uh, you know, firing squads on the table. Uh, so uh, next level uh, of craziness, uh, we're speaking with America's defense attorney, Jerry Buting. You can follow him on Twitter at jbuting. Uh, I have a question, Jerry, about what's happening with cannabis legalization and some of the legal efforts around expungement in states where it is legal. So this might go back to, you know, your law school days. Are there examples in the past that we can learn from about how to do this correctly? Are there states that have done this in a good way? I know it's already being discussed in New York and some other states, but what is the way forward once cannabis is legalized in various states uh, to actually expunge some of the records of the people who've been convicted under this, knowing that it is on their record when they go for a job or to try to rent an apartment? Is there any kind of history about how we can do this correctly? There is, and, and it's, it's not just people who have uh, you know, criminal convictions with consequences that that, um, that, that gives to their life. Um, there are people in prison on simple possession of marijuana still. And in fact, just last week, I think it was, the Supreme Court upheld a Mississippi case where uh, a guy was convicted of possession of 43 grams of marijuana. And because he had a prior um, two offenses, which were relatively minor, um, but one of which involved a burglary, which had later been defined as a, as a matter of course in, in uh, Mississippi as being a violent offense, even if there wasn't any actual violence in it, he got mandatory life in prison without parole for 43 grams of marijuana. And yeah, most people are shocked. It's like, are you kidding me? It's legal in our state. Um, but most states, it's still not legal um, in America. And those places where it is, there has been a move to try and re, uh, expunge those records, remove the convictions from people's records because it does have lasting effects, even for people who don't get the, the draconian penalty of a life imprisonment. Um, it makes it harder for them to get jobs. It um, prevents them from uh, getting certain licenses, um, and you know you're a convicted criminal with, with that kind of uh, record. Now, there's always been the opportunity for a pardon in most states, except in Wisconsin for eight years when Governor Walker was our governor and and departed from you know, hundreds of years of or over a hundred years of of history where governors exercised that pardon. He refused to pardon anybody for eight entire years. But it's back now, uh, our governor uh, is using it. It is available and has, has been available for people all along. If let's say 25 years down the road, you apply, you had one marijuana conviction and you wanna get it removed from your record. Um, but that, that takes forever. And it's, it, it's just uh, taking tiny bites from the apple. There are states that are really trying to change that with second chance type bills that will, um, retroactively expunge 
a, a prior criminal conviction based upon uh, possession of marijuana. It, it can be done. There is, I think, a pretty strong movement in those states, particularly where cannabis possession is now legal, to do that. And, um, and that's encouraging because, you know, there are many, many people who really do have that as their only conviction and really could have, have a lot more doors open to them, opportunities open to them if they could have a clean record. Yeah, and, and, and like you said, there are, there are people who just have possession records and then there are another subset of people whom have had possession kind of leveraged against them in whatever else they were in, in trouble for, for lack of a better word, which really raises some questions of like, you were, um, you were, you were stop and frisked and they found cannabis on you, um, which then led to further charges. There are all sorts of questions of that kind of domino effect. Um, and so, I mean, I know that in the Canadian instance, um, yes, we have federally legalized cannabis, but there is there are still some some serious lingering issues with actually ensuring that everyone has their their record expunged or or gets a pardon. And it's one of those things where it's like people forget that the reason we've legalized uh, in the Canadian instance and then for specific U.S. states is that cannabis never should have been illegal to begin with. Uh, in the same way that alcohol prohibition was a complete failure, and we all kind of in hindsight, realize that. Um, and so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that progresses in the these U.S. states or if the Biden administration will maybe make, um, maybe make some gesture in that direction, although it's unclear as to how far they would be able to go if the federal government does deschedulize cannabis. And so with that, in terms of the Biden administration, just in, in closing here, I'm curious as to what your feeling is um, in regards to criminal justice reform under a Biden presidency. Well, you know, he campaigned on um, a real effort to, to reform the criminal justice system. And a lot of people may not understand this, but um, President Biden is the first American president opposed to the death penalty across the board. He is a, a devoutly Catholic man, goes to, to mass every single week. Um, the Catholic uh, uh, social justice principles have been opposed to the death penalty for any reason for a long, long time now. And uh, Pope Francis, in fact, recently uh, declared it inadmissible is the actual term that they use um, for any circumstance. So. It, it's, it's interesting that we now have a sitting president in, in office who is opposed to the death penalty. And um, that's just one aspect of criminal justice reform, of course. We talked about that earlier. But he is also, um, there's, there's been a number of things like, for instance, recently that it was uh, discovered that under the bar, uh, administration of the Attorney General's office, the Justice Department was um, secretly getting emails from reporters from the New York Times, Washington Post, other organizations in order to try and investigate leaks. And that actually continued into the beginning of the Biden administration, that kind of surveillance, secret surveillance of reporters. Um, and it was when it became public, I believe they just announced recently that they're now no longer going to do that. 
And you know that's improved, uh, the reason for encouragement as well, that um, I think in a lot of different ways, um, the Biden administration will, um, and I think Vice President Harris will also um, join in in reforming criminal justice. But of course, that's at the federal level. Um, other than being a bully pulpit to try and get the legislatures, the state legislatures to do something. You know, in America, we have 51 criminal justice systems, but, you know, the federal government and 50 other states plus the territories. And each one of them, um, they're all bound by the federal constitution, but there's a lot of areas where, um, you know, that has helped, been held not to apply or that it's, it's broad enough that it allows an awful lot of abusive practices still at the state level. So, um, you know, Congress could pass laws that would then statutorily be binding on all of the states. And that's the easiest way to really get reform. That's why there's this police reform bill pending right now that, um, that is, would abolish, for instance, qualified immunity. With one signature, the um, you know, Congress and, and the president could abolish qualified immunity in all of the states. It would be, you know, they would be required to do that. Otherwise, it's, it's going to have to be piecemeal um, for everything from reducing mass incarceration to um, improving funding for prosecution and defense in criminal justice systems um, to a lot of the different procedures that apply even before you're charged or after you're convicted. Those kinds of things, I think the Biden administration is going to be looking at. You know, we are still a very divided government, unfortunately. And even though criminal justice reform in recent years, anyway, has been a nonpartisan issue, um, people on both sides of the aisle have, have recognized the need for reform. Um, too often it has gotten bottled up in bills that have other kinds of very, very partisan um, disagreements and get stuck and nothing really happens. So we'll have to see, you know, ultimately the people through their representatives at the state and federal level need to be heard and demand change um, because it really has to come, it's gonna come from the bottom up. Uh, you know, any reform is not ever gonna start at the top unless there's a real groundswell of movement from people who um, most suffer from the abuses we have right now. And I think there's been plenty of evidence that uh, we have that groundswell now. So uh, we've been speaking with criminal defense attorney Jerry Buting. You can follow his work on his website, jbuting.com. Jerry, thanks so much for coming on Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you. My pleasure. And that does it for Consumer Choice Radio. Thank you for joining us for the hour and for all the other past shows and archives. Check out Consumer Choice Radio for much more. Consumer Choice Radio, hosted by Yael Ososki and myself, David Clement, is a syndicated weekly conversation featuring the latest news, interviews, and expert analysis that covers consumer topics from around the world, focusing on innovation, tech, regulatory policy, and science, Tune in every week to learn why consumer choice matters. You can find all of our previous episodes, interviews, and show notes over on ConsumerChoiceRadio.com, as well as the podcast version of this show. 
And as always, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you do listen to your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Consumer C Radio, myself at Y-A-E-L-O-S-S, and David at Clement Liberty. And find our interviews on YouTube and Instagram just looking up Consumer Choice Radio. If there is a consumer issue affecting you that you think that we should cover, email us directly at hello at consumerchoiceradio.com. Thank you again for listening. Hallelujah. Glory.